0: Thailand's coalition government takes shape, Coldplay announces concerts in Indonesia and Malaysia, and car manufacturer VinFast recalls EVs in the U.S. market. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Karen Lee, and today is June 1st, 2023. On today's show... So I think there's
1: definitely promise for it in the Philippines, but I don't think that nuclear is going to be taking up a large part of the energy mix anytime soon. So, you know, while it's promising to see conversations on it, it doesn't really solve the immediate crisis. And nowhere is the energy crisis more and more immediate in the Philippines.
0: That was our program's very own Danielle Fallon on the potential of deploying nuclear power in the Philippines. If you haven't read our report on clean energy and decarbonization in Southeast Asia yet, be sure to check it out on our website. First, though, the headlines. Today, to help me read the headlines, we have Maya Takahata in the studio. Mai is an intern here with the CSIS Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative and a current student with the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. Welcome, Mai. Hi, Karen. I'm really glad to be here. So, Mai, I heard that you're originally from Tokyo. Now that you've been in school in Boston and are in D.C. for this internship, can you tell us some similarities between the three cities? Oh, that's a really interesting question, Karen.
2: I think all three cities have a mixture of old and new. They look like pretty modern cities, as you see in this stylish CSIS office building, and you're also exposed to contemporary arts, pop culture, and cutting edge technology. But at the same time, those cities are filled with their long history, like the National Mall in DC, the Freedom Trail in Boston, and the Edo Castle ruins in Tokyo, which existed long before the United States was founded. I know many of your listeners follow Southeast Asia, but I'd recommend that they visit Tokyo as well if they have the chance. That's a great answer. Thank you.
0: Moving on to our headlines, our last episode was all about the Thai elections, so naturally we have to cover what happened afterwards. The big question mark had been, how will Move Forward Party leader Pita Halimjir get to 376 votes, or as close to that as possible, to form a government? Well, on May 22nd, just one week after the elections, an eight-party coalition signed a Memorandum of Understanding declaring their intentions to work together. It's also worth noting that this date marks the ninth anniversary of Thailand's last military coup in 2014. So I'm sure there's some symbolism here in terms of ushering in a new era of Thai politics.
2: Wow, that was really fast. How many seats does the coalition now have in total? And can you tell us more about some of the policy priorities in the MOU?
0: So the lion's share of seats still comes from Move Forward and Putai, but now the coalition has 313 seats in the House of Representatives. The MOU lists 23 points that the parties agreed to work towards, including drafting a new democratic constitution, decentralizing budgetary authorities to local administrations, pursuing land reforms, and restoring Thailand's leadership role in ASEAN. But certain policies were also watered down. The pledge to pass a same-sex marriage law, for example, now includes a clause saying compliance would not be forced on people who consider it to be against their religion. And most notably, the MOU does not mention anything about amending the controversial law prohibiting criticism of the monarchy. I
2: think this shows the compromises MFP had to make to put together such a broad coalition. Peter said that his party still intends to submit an amendment to the Leeds Majesty Law to Parliament by itself, since that was a big part of Move Forward's platform while he was campaigning. It seems like cracks may already be forming in the coalition, though, since Putai and Move Forward reportedly both want the role of House Speaker for their own parties. Hutsai leaders have also continued to deny rumors that they may pull out of a coalition and join a military-led minority government instead.
0: Looking ahead, the new parliament is expected to convene for its first meeting on July 25th and elect a prime minister in the first week of August. Shifting to another part of the region, Mai, did you get tickets to the Coldplay concert in Indonesia this November?
2: I wish! When Coldplay announced in May that they would be playing their first concert in Indonesia, Fans immediately commenced the ticket war and pre-sale tickets sold out within 30 minutes. Some ticket brokers were reselling tickets at a whopping 60 million rupiah or almost 4,000 US dollars, nearly five times their original price. Tickets were in such high demand that a bride reportedly even received them as part of her dowry. A similar situation played out in Malaysia where the band is also giving their first performance in November.
0: Despite the band's popularity, however, Indonesian Islamists and conservatives have pushed back against Coldplay's visit. The country's top clerical body asked organizers to make sure LGBTQ-themed acts or messages are not promoted during the concert, and other Muslim groups warned that they would block Jakarta's airport if the show was not cancelled. In response to the situation, Indonesia's Minister for Tourism and Creative Economy said his department would try and hold talks with critics to explain the economic benefits of the concert, which the government is hoping will help restart the country's tourism sector.
2: During a Malaysian parliament session in March, a politician from the opposition party Islamsi Malaysia denounced the organizing of the concerts by foreign artists that were against the value of the country's Muslim-majority population. At the time, he was referring to BLACKPINK, the popular K-pop girl group that drew over 60,000 fans to performance in Kuala Lumpur. But Coldplay has also espoused views that differ from the Conservative Party's beliefs. Most recently, Malaysia's Home Affairs Ministry seized and confiscated rainbow-colored watches from the brand Swatch Group's Pride collection after citizens connected it to cold blade support for the LGBT community.
0: The Religious Affairs Minister said that while Malaysia does not recognize the LGBT movement, the government also does not discriminate against members of the community. In terms of policy changes, Malaysia's Communications and Digital Ministry suggested that it may aim to adopt anti-scalping initiatives in order to prevent similar ticket upcharges from occurring in the future.
2: Wow, maybe I really should have bought those tickets. Moving on to our final story from the region, VinFast, a Vietnamese car company, has recalled the first batch of EVs it shipped to the U.S. last year. The VF8 SUV debuted in March in California and was the first Vietnamese car driven on U.S. roads. The recall came after the U.S. National Highway Traffic Safety Administration found that the car's dashboard display went blank while driving or stationally due to a software error and prevented critical safety information from being shown. While VinFast recalled all 999 units of the batch, it seems that only about 100 had been actually sold to customers.
0: The recall also follows VinFast's announcement earlier in May that it plans to list on a U.S. stock exchange via a merger with a special purpose acquisition company, or SPAC, called Black Spade Acquisition. This new entity is estimated to have a potential equity value of $23 billion. SPACs are seen as a shortcut to the stock market, and we've seen other Southeast Asian companies take this route before. In December 2021, ride-hailing and food delivery app Grab listed on NASDAQ via the largest ever SPAC deal valued at $40 billion. It's not clear yet whether
2: the recall will impact the company's plans to list publicly in the United States or its reported plans to expand into Southeast Asia by building out a fleet of right-hand steered vehicles. However, given increasing competition from Chinese EV makers and the company's ambitious goals of hitting profitability by 2025, VinFast has a short time to turn a tough situation around.
0: Well, we'll just have to wait and see if they can succeed in some pretty ambitious goals. And those are the headlines. Thanks, Mai, for stopping by. Thank you for having me on, Karen. Up next, Alina's discussion with the Southeast Asia program team on our decarbonization report.
3: Welcome back, listeners. As always, I am Greg Polden here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, joined by Alina Noor of the Carnegie Endowment. Hello. And today we have a special episode because we have no guests from outside of the house. Instead, we've brought on two of our own from CSIS, Danielle Fallon and Karen Lee. Hi. Hello, hello.
0: Hi, good to be here.
3: And Danielle and Karen are here to talk about our newest report, which they did all the real work on, even though my name's spackled somewhere on the front. I think it's number three titled Clean Energy and Decarbonization in Southeast Asia, colon Challenges and Opportunities? Did I get them the right Overview,
0: order? Overview, Obstacles, and Opportunities. Overview,
3: Obstacles, and Opportunities. Point being, Danny and Karen spent months digging through all the data available, interviewing everybody they could get their hands on to get a sense of the national energy transition plans across all the major economies of Southeast Asia, what their decarbonization commitments made at Glasgow and beyond are, and how realistic those really are in a post- Russian invasion of Ukraine world, given the volatility in energy markets. And we should add also what the U.S. and other donors can do to help bring those two circles a little little closer in the Venn diagram. So I'm going to mostly stop talking now because it's inappropriate for me to moderate a discussion about my own report. So Alina, the steering wheel is yours for this one.
4: I mean, is it really, Greg? You could just take it away and be all positive about the whole report.
3: I mean, Washington, D.C. is a self-licking ice cream cone, but I think somebody else should at least toss me the softballs.
4: Well, that's a good segue to kick us off, actually. I will toss you some softballs. But first of all, I have to commend whoever came up with the alliteration for part of the
0: report title. That was me. Obviously not me. I didn't remember. I'm I'm
4: glad you, you noticed. Well done, Karen. Little things, you know, they count. All right, guys. Tell me your three biggest takeaways from the report, what we should all know about it, and how we should start thinking about this topic.
0: Yeah, I think we probably have similar takeaways, but I can definitely go first. I think the biggest one which we put in the introduction is that after looking at these national energy transition plans, the conclusion all around is that countries face an uphill battle because of a continued dependence on fossil fuels as well as lack of financing. So there's different estimates from different organizations on how much money the region will need, but everything is in the hundreds of billions. And this is even after the announcement of two jet peas for Indonesia and Vietnam. So I'd say it'll be very hard for countries to meet their carbon neutrality goals.
4: So let me just pause you there. JetP means?
0: The Just Energy Transition Partnership. So basically, a big climate deal that the United States and the International Partners Group, of which a lot of G7 countries are members, announced first with South Africa in 2021. Then they announced the second one with Indonesia in November 2022, and then with Vietnam in December of last year. And we can get more into that later. So that's one. I'll turn it over to Danny for maybe a second takeaway. Yeah. On a
1: more optimistic note, I think one of the main takeaways is that decarbonization is important to governments in the region. And the main problem is really, as Karen was saying, the affordability of the energy transitions. But every government is is talking about it right now. And they all have goals of what they want to reach, whether they're able to reach it or not. That's what Karen and I are debating currently. But Economic security is by far the number one important thing for Southeast Asia right now. So finding ways to fund the transition is incredibly important, but it's still on the roster, and I think there are definitely some opportunities to make sure that the energy transition is on the way.
0: And I guess I'll throw in the third takeaway, which is that every country is just very different. They have different energy mixes, different goals for what renewables they want to use, I think coal and a continued reliance on fossil fuels is definitely the elephant in the room for many countries. But, for example, you have Philippines and Thailand that are facing depleting gas fields. You have countries like Singapore that largely sort of are financing their own transition, but they're still looking for ways to partner with other countries. You have places like Laos that are kind of acting as the renewable energy exporter for their larger neighbors, but they're trying to figure out ways to become a carbon sink themselves. And I'd definitely say that our report isn't comprehensive and we only cover eight countries and had a word limit. So there is a lot of information out there, more and more coming out every day. And I think it's definitely not one size fits all for the region.
4: I don't want to make you feel left out. Greg, do you have a takeaway from the report?
3: It's that any senior scholar in Washington should have good research associates to make them seem smarter than they really are. Um, In in all seriousness, Danny and Karen did all the heavy lifting on this. And I, as Washington, quote, experts often do, just kind of came in at the end and was like, I'll add some flowery language in the intro and conclusion. If I take all, everything that they just said and I, I package it together, I think, like, what would the executive summary be, which this report's too short to have an executive summary, but what would it be? I think it would essentially be that the both countries in the region and donors like the U.S. and Japan need to adopt an everything and approach when it comes to what we're funding in the region because the mature technologies as they exist today will never be enough to bridge the gap that is – evident in all the projections, particularly given how much energy demand is going to grow as economies continue to grow. So yes, you do still need natural gas and LNG on top of renewables, as much as the Biden administration might not like to admit that. And also, that's still not going to be enough. You need carbon capture and storage to mature. You need other technologies, whether it's hydrocarbon, or small modular reactors or something that hasn't even been proven commercially viable because everything we've got and then some is probably going to fall short.
4: So I should just add that the questions that I'm going to be asking are really from a non-expert point of view at all. I know nothing about carbon capture or decarbonization or greenhouse gases. So I'm really taking a layperson's approach to questioning you about this report and its substance.
0: Hopefully our listeners are coming from that perspective too. So thank you.
4: Sure. One of the questions I had in reading your report, which is very well done given the word limit, I appreciated the fact that you tried to pack everything pretty concisely, especially with the country reports, is that so you have a group of countries that mainly rely on hydrocarbons and coal. But there's also a really small constituency in the region that is reliant on hydropower. And we we can go into that later. But I was just wondering how difficult it would be for a partner like the United States to come in and support energy transition policies and plans for these countries, given these different mixes of energy that different countries are reliant on. That's a
0: great question.
4: I would say that from the United
0: States perspective, it seems they have mostly been focusing on the countries that rely on coal. As you can see, the two jet peas are with Indonesia and Vietnam, who collectively account for 90% of the region's coal production. So I'd say I'd be curious to to hear what the answer from the USG perspective as well. Because yeah, if, if we're talking about hydropower, Laos would be the big one that is reliant there and I haven't heard anything on that front about cooperation with the U.S.
4: Do we know why there are no other JetP programs that are going to be announced? I think it might just be an issue with capacity.
0: I think after this, they're probably looking at India is what we've been reading, but probably just in terms of capacity in the region, I think, again, just having the focus on large emitters. But I think just because of perhaps a bandwidth issue that the U.S. hasn't really been looking beyond Indonesia and Vietnam for those big partnerships and agreements.
1: Yeah. yeah, I'll also add to that. I think JetP is a great idea, but is yet to be seen what the reality looks like, in, like in actuality. <laughs> yeah, sort of like and
3: No, we know LA. what's in JetP.
1: <laughs> 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 you know, but JetP is a pledge, and it also consists of a mix of grants and and loans and. So far, from what we've been hearing from counterparts in Indonesia and Vietnam, they want to know what is actually going to come out of it. They're waiting to see where the money is from right now. So until we see how realistic JetP is, I think the United States is going to be hesitant about making big pledges again because it wants to make sure that it's able to be reliable as it's you know talking about the energy transition.
3: As with so much, I think, aid from the US, Japan, the multilateral banks, there's a tension between needs for rapidity and large sums and the need for due diligence. The first JetP in South Africa disappointed both the recipient and the donors. And so as a result, in the JetPs in Indonesia and Vietnam, you have this. I think, much more cautious approach in which they want uh, very clear roadmaps. First, they want the establishment of a secretariat, which has now happened in Indonesia and not yet in Vietnam. They want very clear national plans from the host government before they can even decide what they might fund. So it's going to move relatively slow. You also have an issue of scale. I mean, JetP is large numbers. In the case of Vietnam, the most recent it was $135 billion. I'm sorry, 15, $15.5 billion. Dollars. That is – Roughly 10% of what Vietnam says it needs, $135 billion under Power Development Plan 8 by 2030. So, yes, it's nice to get 10% of your funding needs, but that 10% of your funding needs better be pretty well targeted if it's really going to unlock the kind of private capital that we claim it will.
4: So, I guess to follow up with a semi-facetious but also genuinely curious question, you know, part of your recommendation is that U.S. should work with its partners to help with the energy transition plans of these countries in Southeast Asia. But the U.S. itself is one of the largest greenhouse gas emitters on an absolute term as well as a per capita term. What sort of credibility does the U.S. hold in this space?
3: Well, I suppose a lot of this depends on the implementation of the IRA, among other things. If the Plans that have been laid out by the Biden administration, which are pretty ambitious, actually come to pass, and the U.S. will have a fair amount of credibility. And if they don't, then we'll have virtually none. And this is not just a U.S. problem. You also have to deal with the credibility gap among the entire developed world. It's entirely fair for South Asian countries to look these donors in the face and say, last I checked, you fueled your eyes to developed country status using coal. You created this problem. Now you're telling me that I have to sacrifice economic growth in order to fix your problem? And the answer is no. So the donors need to come to the table and provide enough support that countries can transition to net zero without crimping economic growth. And that's simply not possible in almost all cases, exceptions like already developed or upper income economies like Singapore and Thailand and Malaysia. But for everybody else, they don't have the capital at home to invest without crimping economic growth. And it's a pretty hard sell to go into the Philippines or Vietnam and, and tell somebody who wants a job and food on the table that, hey, you know, 20 years from now, your neighborhood is going to be underwater. So you should really not go to work at the coal plant. And that's, that's, that's not saleable.
4: And and that's a frequent argument that we've heard at many like, COP iterations as well. Perhaps a more crude
0: answer would be... The U.S. doesn't have credibility, but it does have money and expertise. And when we were writing the introduction and thinking about how to make these recommendations, sort of the question was, well, why should USG care about this issue and the climate crisis? And the answer is that because the region cares about it. And if the U.S. wants to build out a greater economic strategy and work on issues of mutual interest that are not just security and U.S.-China competition, I think this is an issue that is very attractive to a lot of regional governments and something that they are focused on, despite, as Danielle mentioned, the concern about economic development.
1: Yeah, I think a way that the U.S. can also build its credibility is not just through providing finance, but also through providing technical capacity. So much of the interviews that Karen and I were in talking about, you know, the us Economics is so important, but also technical capacity is where we also need the U.S. to to come in. This could be through IPEF. This could be through other ways as well. And we're beginning to see that. So when Vice President Harris visited the Philippines, she announced new projects looking at feasibility in geothermal and nuclear power. Right. So we're beginning to see the U.S. also step into technical capacity and other areas that's not just fully funding. But I think there's definitely a a lot more room for growth.
4: We'll get to nuclear in a short bit. But I guess one perspective I could see coming out from Southeast Asia is that, well, this would be a perfect opportunity for the U.S. and China to work together in helping with the transition plan in Southeast Asia. What's your response to that?
0: We actually did think about that as a recommendation that the US and China should work more together. I actually just read an article before prepping for this interview that was lamenting how there's so much lost opportunity there. So there is an opportunity, but similar to how I think everyone in the region knows that our free trade agreement is not on the table. Unfortunately, it feels like a similar situation where you can't even mention cooperating with China because there's so many issues around that. And Unfortunately, so. And one of the topics we talked about was the tariffs on solar panels from the region. And so that has been part of U.S.-China competition. Luckily, recently, President Biden vetoed a congressional resolution to end the moratorium on tariffs on these solar panels from four Southeast Asian countries because of concern over their, their ties to Chinese companies. And so now it will last until June 2024 the, the waiver on tariffs. But yeah, I think it's definitely a lost opportunity.
1: Yeah, I would agree. I think so much of the conversation about collaboration with China becomes hard based off of current geopolitical contexts. But one thing that we did hear is that with U.S.-China competition increasing, you know, the energy transition and energy funding is a way that the U.S. can increase its bilateral relationship with the region without the ghost of China competition and supply chains, right? So this is one way that the US can say, we're interested in in helping you and we have shared values and it's totally outside of China. While I do think there is room for collaboration with China, I, I think the current situation makes things difficult.
0: I think everything definitely is couched in U.S.-China competition, though. So one of the sections of our report talks about supply chains and how countries like Indonesia and the Philippines are trying to bolster their raw material production as well as refinement, since currently 90 percent of rare earth elements are processed in China. So that presents a supply chain vulnerability And yet you see provisions in the IRA where Indonesia, as sort of not a free trade agreement partner, is not included. And that has concerned a lot of stakeholders there. So it still remains the elephant in the room where, like, you can, but you can't talk about it. Greg, any thoughts?
3: I mean, I agree with all of that. It's doubly difficult because this isn't a problem for just one side. I mean, the U.S. has a rather dysfunctional often contradictory approach, where you'll hear Secretary Kerry, among others, say, well, we need to work with China on shared public goods, not just climate change, but food security and energy security and the like. But then we do have a lot of clear policies in the strategic competition bucket that cut the other way. And everybody wants a bigger piece of the Indonesian nickel pie and cobalt pie so that they can speed up the transition to electric vehicles. And yet they don't want Chinese battery makers, the largest in the world, to be the ones investing. Well, you can't have that both ways. But it also comes from China, right? I mean, China continues to take a position that it cannot separate strategic competition from cooperation. So the U.S. says, let's talk about climate change and set aside the competitive aspects of the relationship. And China says, no, we're not going to cooperate on climate change as long as you continue to compete on these other areas. We also, let's not be Pollyannish here, China continues to be coy about whether or not it's going to stop exporting new coal plants abroad. And as long as it continues to build coal plants in the developing world, it's contributing to the problem, not the solution.
4: Okay, so one of the things I heard when I was in Singapore recently is about the Philippines, really quite oppressive energy rates in the region. And one of the holdouts for Mitigating that is the Bataan Nuclear Power Plant, which has never been in use. Part of the problem, of course, is the Philippines' geography and topography itself, right? So it sits on the Pacific Rim of Fire. But we had a briefing from the head of the plant itself, and you know he was very reassuring that it was all safe. And Daniel, you just talked about Vice President Harris going to the region, talking about nuclear and geothermal being options. Do we know anything more about some of the assistance that might go towards the nuclear power plant plan or plans to revive it in the Philippines, especially with President Marcos just having visited Washington?
1: Mm-hmm. So far, what I've heard is just the feasibility studies on in creating a plan about what that would actually look like. But throughout some of the conversations that we've had, we've definitely heard about a reticence to adopt nuclear because of we know what happened in japan so i think there's definitely promise for it in the philippines but i don't think that nuclear is going to be taking up a large part of the energy mix anytime soon so you know while it's promising to see conversations on it it doesn't really solve the immediate crisis and nowhere is the energy crisis more and more immediate in the Philippines. It's facing some of the highest electricity rates right now. Malampaya, which supplies 20% of its energy needs, is supposed to run out maybe by 2027, 2028. Those are the years that we've heard, right? And the Philippines is definitely facing a lot of pressure from China, right, when it comes to talking about oil and gas exploration. So while I'm happy to hear about the possibility of exploring nuclear in Bataan, I think having deeper conversations about how to make sure that the Philippines can even secure its energy, right? And what the energy transition is going to look like there is a little bit more immediate.
3: I think that both in Washington and in Manila, I hear the Bataan discussion thrown out almost as like a conversation starter. Not that anybody actually thinks that it's likely that this, you know, the mothballed plant, which is older than I am, is going to be brought into operation for the first time ever. But you do have progress on the U.S.-Philippine 123, the civil nuclear agreement, and you had Marcos sign an initial MOU for development or for exploration of small modular reactors in the Philippines. That seems much more viable, not just for the Philippines, potentially for parts of Indonesia as well, where you have small or medium-sized communities so that would be very difficult to connect to a national grid in which large-scale hydropower or offshore wind farms or solar will be difficult, and small modular reactors in places like Palawan or western Mindanao, parts of the Visayas that are more protected from typhoons usually roll in from the east, could make a lot of sense, where they would be relatively safe, contained, and provide small but important-scale energy to parts of the grid that would otherwise be left unserved.
0: Going back to Danielle's point, I definitely echo the sentiment that In a lot of our interviews, we heard that no country really wants to be the first to test out nuclear technologies. So you had a similar agreement announced in Thailand around exploring a small modular reactor, SMR technology. But... Definitely, I don't think this is something that countries are factoring into their short-term energy plans. And I don't think that technologies like carbon capture, utilization, storage, or nuclear should be seen as the silver bullet. The priority, honestly, should be focusing on decommissioning or converting coal power plants, which costs a lot of money. And I think we heard from some folks that they feel like Focusing the conversation on nuclear is only a distraction. Like it's, it's definitely very exciting that a lot of these technologies are now possible. But the challenge for many of these countries is, is weaning themselves off of fossil fuels.
4: Speaking of new technologies, final question. Actually, I'm not sh- even sure if it's a question, but it's just something I was wondering about when I was reading your section on Thailand and how the EV market is a key part of its energy transition plan. I recognize your report is about decarbonization but there are other equally if not more polluting side effects from the EV industry as we all know and I was just wondering like how you how you square that conundrum you know so on the one hand you're trying to have a cleaner energy mix but on the other hand you are emitting non-CO2 pollutants that could potentially be more dangerous down the line for your community as well as the environment writ large. Like I said, I'm not sure there's a question in there, but do you have a response to that? That's definitely a fair
0: concern, and I think it's come up in the context of Lao and hydropower dams as well. A lot of these construction projects have displaced indigenous communities and caused harm to sort of ecosystems along the Mekong And yeah, that's definitely a contradiction we saw in the case of Indonesia as well, where you have JetP, you have this plan to phase out of coal power plants, and yet the government is announcing coal power plants that will power a green industrial park. And so there's definitely contradictions there, and I think it's important to recognize them. Thankfully, it seems like a lot of companies are a lot more focused on corporate social responsibility and those types of initiatives now, so I think raising awareness is definitely an important part of the conversation
3: on the battery production in particular, I mean we have seen the pretty severe environmental damage in places like Sulawesi from refining processes and the poor you know standards put in place for disposal where some are just being dumped into the ocean of of the tailings. Part of this may well be a commercial solution as The price of nickel fluctuates wildly, as does cobalt, and as Indonesia gets closer to basically running out of known reserves by the end of the decade, you're seeing a pretty rapid move by companies, including Tesla, among others, toward battery production that uses less, or in many cases, no nickel, no cobalt. They may be slightly less efficient, but they're cheaper, they're cleaner to produce, and scarcity tends to produce innovation. So you've got entire industries now built on a finite resource, which is these minerals that exist, you know, now Indonesia produces by far the majority of the world's nickels, second most cobalt, I think Canada's what, also has 10% of the world's nickel. There's, they're going to run out. And then we better be ready. We better not have an entire EV industry that runs on a resource that effectively we can no longer get.
4: Hope is not a strategy, Greg.
3: No, but profit. <laughs> tends to produce strategies and companies want to keep making money after the nickel's gone.
1: Yeah, I'll just kind of echo the same sentiments. I think private investment, private companies really care about making sure that a project is bankable and making sure that there aren't going to be any large blowback that comes from the projects that they're investing in. You know, 60% of the energy transition in the region right now is funded by the public sector. And in the International Energy Agency's report, they're saying in a sustainable development, 70% should come from private investment. So I think as Southeast Asia is looking at ways to attract private investment, they're going to be a little bit more concerned about making sure that there's no negative ramifications that, that come with the transition.
4: So all this to say that your next report will be on non-CO2 pollutants, right? Yes. Maybe I shouldn't have said that.
3: Karen's going to go raise funds for that report right after we get off the podcast.
0: I think there's definitely a lot of areas that our report wasn't able to cover. So we didn't really do a deep dive into the transportation sector or the agricultural sector, which are, are big for the region. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on, I think, in the building and construction sector. Uh, Singapore has been looking at how to promote energy efficiency there, especially since that's globally responsible for 40% of greenhouse gas emissions. We we didn't really do a deep dive into manufacturing either. So I think there's a lot of different ways that the report could have gone and that research can still
3: be done.
4: Well, it's a, it's a great report to kickstart the discussion. So thank you for letting me ask you all sorts of questions about it.
3: Thank you. And like a podcast, a good report knows when to end. So we had to cut it to 5,000 words, which really makes it more of a 7, white paper. 7,000, yeah. yeah. But, you know, it's Washington, and people don't read 30-, 40-page PDFs anymore. So you got to speak to the media that works.
4: I think you should follow up with a TikTok video.
3: Mm.
4: Just a suggestion.
3: All right. Well, that's it for us this week. Thank you all for joining us. Danny, Karen, thank you for the months of hard work on this report. And thank all of you for listening. We'll see you next time.
0: Thanks for having us. Thanks. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. We love hearing from you, so feel free to write us with any comments, questions, or feedback at searadio at CSIS.org, and we'll be sure to answer any burning questions you may have.
2: Do us a favor and subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. Tell
0: your friends about us. Our producers for this episode were Marla Hiller and David Lutvi, and our intern is Margaret Lin. Our host today was Alina Noor. My name is Karen Lee. And I'm Mai Takahata. And we'll see you in two weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio.